What Title 42 does in practice is deny the right to seek asylum. It's a right which is required under international law, international law to which the U.S. is a party and is equally obligated. Witness Radio. If you've never heard of Title 42, I'm not surprised. It's a super obscure part of the United States Health Code. Now everyone's talking about it, or they should be. And in this podcast, we aim to find out why. Dating to 1944, Title 42 authorizes the removal by the United States government of persons who've recently been in a country where a communicable disease was present. From the end of March 2020, the Trump administration invoked Title 42 to authorize Customs and Border Protection officers to block entry to the U.S. to migrants, including those presenting themselves lawfully at ports of entry to request asylum, and then to summarily expel them back to the horrors and harm that they fled, all under the pretense of protecting American citizens from COVID-19. In other words, they used the pandemic, which at the time they were calling a hoax and maintaining would disappear by summer, as an excuse to shut down the southern border, thereby cutting off asylum to all those accessing the border on foot. In one fell swoop, Trump and co. accomplished what they had dedicated their entire term to do, end the right to asylum in the United States, particularly for the poor and particularly for the black and brown. Neither family separation nor the migrant protection protocols, which trapped people in Mexico without any protection at all, nor indefinite detention in for-profit prisons turned out to be quite as effective as their blatant misuse of Title 42 to simply close the border to migration. It was also a lot cheaper than erecting a boondoggle wall. Title 42 became Trump's real wall, what our special guest Gerlene Joseph calls an invisible wall that for now over a year has led to the forced expulsion of hundreds of thousands of the world's most vulnerable people, including small children and tiny babies. Even experts from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control couldn't convince Trump and co. that closing the border to only certain individuals would keep Americans safe from the coronavirus. Listen to these numbers. As of the one-year anniversary of the Trump administration's erecting their invisible Title 42 wall, roughly 100 million people have crossed the U.S. southern border in cars and trucks and on foot without any testing of any kind while a half million refugees, plus fleeing tragic circumstances and in desperate need of humanitarian relief, have been expelled from the border without any due process under U.S. law and in violation of their internationally recognized right to migrate. Trump and co. brandished Title 42 in theory against the specter of COVID-19, which they didn't even believe in. But what they really used it for was to stem the flow of people entering the United States. Regrettably, the Biden administration continues to use this dubious provision to regulate migration as well. In this inaugural podcast of Witness Radio, I am joined by my colleagues at Witness at the Border, Joshua Rubin, Tom Cartwright, and Camilo Perez Bustillo, as well as human rights warrior Gerlene Joseph, to discuss how Title 42 violates the human rights of the most vulnerable of all asylum seekers and why its use must be halted now. Good afternoon, family, wherever you are right now. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Tom. Josh, thank you so much 
for setting up the mood and the table for us to share today. Tom and another fellow witness, Carla Barber, have been tracking ICE air deportation and expulsion flights since I met them in January 2020. Josh is the founder of Witness at the Border, and Gerline is the co-founder and executive director of the Haitian Bridge Alliance, which is a misnomer, really, because Gerline and her amazing team are committed to fighting for the rights of all Black immigrants, from the Caribbean, Haiti, and Jamaica, from majority Black countries in Africa, like Cameroon and Mauritania, and from the Afro-Latinx community who, as Gerline will tell you, often get forgotten in the grand scheme of things. On the day we met and recorded this conversation, March 25th, 2021, Garlene and her team had just launched a position paper called Title 42, The Invisible Wall, and a related piece, co-authored by Garlene, appeared in The Nation just the day before. You'll find links to these resources in the show notes. To set the stage for our discussion of Title 42, I'll let Josh tell you where we're coming from. We believe that there's a universal human right to migrate that people have a right to move in order to survive and uh, will continue to do so when conditions are such that they must. Many of us find in Title 42 a trope reminiscent of those that have appeared at some of the most odious episodes in history. I'd say for me, most notably, the specter raised by Nazis in Germany, of foreigners, gypsies and Jews, carrying with them contagion and disease. The dirty immigrant trope did not start with the coronavirus pandemic. It did not start with the Holocaust. It didn't start in 1917, but that year and for the next 40, Mexicans crossing the Santa Fe Bridge from Ciudad Juarez to El Paso were forced to strip naked and suffer being sprayed down with chemical agents while their clothes were fumigated. The government experimented with several toxic products over the years, including kerosene, sodium cyanide, sulfuric acid, and gasoline. Cyclone B, later used to exterminate Jews in the gas chambers of Nazi concentration camps, was the chemical of choice at the makeshift border laundromat. Today, as Josh states, the myth of the dirty immigrant remains alive and well in the clearly racist and discretionary way Title 42 is being used at the border. One little-known fact, even among immigrant rights activists just like ourselves, is the special expression of racist reality that weighs on Black migrants to our country. Title 42 has been especially brutal to Haitians, and particularly under Biden. More Haitians have been expelled in the last few weeks than were expelled under Trump in an entire year. And that's really saying something, because while the rest of the economy was hobbled by the pandemic, Trump and co. kept the ICE air deportation machine humming. It crisscrossed U.S. airspace, shuffling detained asylum seekers, shackled in five-point restraints like criminals and with no COVID protections, between the 200-plus detention facilities which now constitute the world's largest immigration detention complex, 70% of which operates for profit. Tom's data show that since he and Carla started tracking deportations in January of 2020, ICER has realized over 6,000 flights. 20%, or roughly 1,200 of these, sent folks away to countries as near as Mexico and as far as Vietnam. In the final months of the Trump administration, at least six long-haul chartered deportations carried asylum seekers back to Africa, including to Mauritania, where the enslavement of black people is still a thing, as well as to war-torn Cameroon, where Paul Bia's routine persecution of his minority Anglophone population might be called a genocide. 
Returning people to such grave harm is a violation of international human rights conventions to which the U.S. is a signatory, as Camilo so eloquently reminds us. But Trump and co. did not recognize asylum, and by extension, they didn't give much credence to the human rights that gave rise to asylum laws. The act of asking for asylum, to them, was tantamount to committing a grievous crime. Example, ICE Air agents shackle all adult individuals in five-point restraints throughout deportation proceedings. That means cuffing ankles and wrists and tying both cuffs to a heavy chain around the waist. Now imagine being so bound all the way back to Africa. Asylum seekers expelled to Angola in November were in bondage for 34 hours and 40 minutes. The longest deportation flight that I'm aware of lasted 96 hours. It's like a journey through the Middle Passage, but in reverse. In order for us to really understand the effect of Title 42 on Black migrants, I will just go back to tell, to give you a little bit of backstories of who those people are, where they are coming from, and how they made their way to the U.S.-Mexico border. In the case of Haiti, we remember in 2010, the earthquake that happened, killing over 250,000 people that day, leaving close to 3 million people completely in shambles. The complete infrastructure of the country crumbled, leaving behind a disaster. As part of a humanitarian program, folks left Haiti and migrated to Brazil. And they were there for about five years. They have built with, you know, manual labor for the Olympics, for the, for the World Cups and all of that. But unfortunately, the economy of Brazil collapsed and the political turmoil started. And imagine those people, the survivors of the earthquake who migrated to Brazil now are forced again to live in search of life. Those people made their way by foot from Brazil, crossing the entire South and Central America to come to the U.S.-Mexico border to ask for asylum. Fortunately, a lot of people were released on humanitarian parole. And with that, they were able to procure social security. They were able to procure work authorization. They were able to at least have a shot at life while they continue their immigration case in the United States. Under the Trump administration, what he dubbed catch and release, instead of calling it what it was, we saw at that time people were no longer being released. People were being put in immigration prisons, and the majority of them have been deported, leaving behind what we saw in what we call the beginning of family separation at the U.S.-Mexico border, where 99% of the time, the father, the partner, the husband will be deported, leaving part of the family behind. And then we saw a second group of Haitians who started migrating from Chile due to anti-Black racism that started to really, really affect their lives. And the stories that we heard are extremely heartbroken. They then too were forced to look for life. And then the last flow of Haitians we saw arriving were people who were in Venezuela for the past 20, 30 years who escaped political turmoil 30 years before that, now having to flee again. So when we are thinking about the border issue, when we are thinking about the Black migrants at the issue, and from Haiti in particular, 
these people have been in transit for 10 years. Wow. Right. And now we see people from Cameroon who are fleeing armed conflicts that were forced upon them because of the remnant of colonization. When we see the Anglophone fighting the Francophone, the mentality from the former colonizers dividing a people. And we see them having to flee, having to literally flee for their lives, making the journey from Africa to the Americas to come to the border to ask for asylum. We see people from Eritrea, from Angola, from, from the Congo, you name it, we've seen it. And we at the Haitian British Alliance, what we say and what is true for us is that we went to the border because they told us they were Haitians. But when we arrived, we saw people from all of those different countries, including people from Guatemala, from Honduras, from Cuba, and also a lot of Mexicans trying to find a better life. So we went for the Haitians, but we stayed for everyone else. I think it's important that people know that our immigration detention complex that we're saddled with today began with an influx of Haitian immigrants four decades ago. The Carter administration adopted detention then when we really didn't have a detention system after World War II. And they did it specifically to send a message to Haitians that they weren't welcome, thus kicking off the criminalization of immigration, which has expanded and expanded and expanded from president to president, no matter the political party. Trump destroyed asylum with Title 42, but he expanded for-profit detention and deportation. Thank you, sister, for sharing that. The unwanted Haitians were locked up in cages in Guantanamo Bay, in Homestead, and create a system that we see continues to destroy lives in these United States of ours. People like myself from the Caribbean, double whammy, not only are we descendants of slaves, we are also immigrants, right? And understanding that our immigration status does not protect us. So going back for Title 42, and we see how they have weaponized Title 42, they have used it as a trap for literally destroying lives. When we see people getting stuck and there is no plan, there's no direction on what they need to do, they become prey, getting misinformation, bad information. The coyotes are using that to then use those people and put them in danger. Understanding when it comes to Black migrants or Haitians and Africans that are coming to the border Unfortunately for them, unfortunately for us, traveling in this black body is a target. So we, they cannot blend into the Mexican society like our members from South and Central America. The moment a black person is seen, they know for a fact that this person is a migrant, so therefore the abuse starts and the abuse continues. In current news and current events, we know that right now they are providing protection for children who have come by themselves, which we applaud. Really grateful for President Biden and the administration for providing this protection for those children. But normally, the Black families travel together, they present themselves together, they enter together, they get deported and expelled together 
under Title 42. So under President Biden, as of today, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tom, I think we are about 22 or 23 flights deportation to Haiti. Families with children, infants, babies, as young as just a couple of weeks old. We've seen two years old, we've seen five years old, 16, 17, we have seen it happening. As the United States is literally deporting people into Haiti, Haiti is literally on fire. And as I mentioned before, we see a house burning. Instead of providing protection and safety, we are taking babies and infants and women and pregnant women and young men and dropping them into the burning fire, into the burning house. The majority of those children were not born in Haiti. They were either born in Brazil, in Chile, in Venezuela, in transit, and lately at the border, right? Because they were forced to stay. They were refused asylum. Trump completely destroyed the entire system, making sure that they had no access. They have been stuck at the border for the past four or five years, and they have been in transit for the past 10 years. And with the help of Title 42, we see all of this magnified tenfold, specifically for children, specifically for families. You know, there's a lot of discussion about the growth in the number of children coming across the border. Some 10,000 last month, this month, you know, is on a pace maybe for 20,000 unaccompanied children to come across the border. The question we always ask is, how many of those kids came to the border with families? And those families hit that invisible wall, and they found that there is no hope for a family to come across. And some have been there, as Geraldine knows, for years, and now no hope. So the question you have to ask yourself is, what would you do? What would you do for your kids? Especially since 80% of those kids have family in the United States or more than 80%, what would you do? And the answer is, you would probably have your children go across the border with a coyote and try and find their way to family and find some safety. So these are, these are things that these, when you put in these policies, you get these unintended consequences. And, you know, it, it's, it's something that, that uh, um, we don't think gets talked about nearly enough. I can share one example with you of a family that was deported, that was expelled a couple of weeks ago. And I spoke with the woman and it was extremely painful for me to just listen to her, to listen to her story. She shared with me that she was raped kidnapped and raped in 2016, brutally raped. She barely escaped and fled. She and her husband went to Chile where they experienced grave racism to the point where they themselves were attacked. So again, they were forced to leave Chile and come to the U.S.-Mexico border. They were at the U.S.-Mexico border for a year and a half where she ended up giving birth to their child. When they entered, when they crossed to the United States, they were taken in with the five-month-old baby. She shared that once she was captured, detained for 10 days without access to any type of hygiene, no shower, no toothbrush, no toothpaste, no soap, not even the opportunity for her to change her clothes. Now imagine a woman 
with an infant in those conditions. And she shared with me that every morning between 4 and 5 a.m., she gets awakened to come for breakfast. The breakfast is the same as lunch, it's the same as dinner. It's a bean burrito. And one morning, when they came and asked her to come get breakfast, she pled with the people, can I please let my baby sleep because it is too early. It is chilly outside, it is cold. The baby is sleeping, can I leave the baby there? They told her no. And she said, please, they said, no, if you do not want to bring the baby, we will drag the baby out for you. So she mustered all of her strength and got the baby out to the cold. And she also shared that the baby actually sold her diaper and the diaper leaked into the baby's clothes and into her clothes. When she asked for an opportunity to change the baby's clothes, they refused. When she had asked for an opportunity to change her clothes, they refused. For four days, the baby stayed in the soil clothes and she stayed in the soil clothes. And what is the most humiliating part of it? She got packed into this flight and deported in the same clothes that she was wearing for 10 days. And currently, because, as I mentioned, she had to escape for her life after being kidnapped and raped, she is currently in hiding, afraid that if people know that she is back, they will come back and they will kill her, her husband, and now her newborn baby. So this is the reality that we are seeing, that we are experiencing, and seeing how we continue the same system that we were fighting for under Trump continued today. What Title 42 does in practice is deny the right to seek asylum. The right to seek asylum is deeply embedded in U.S. law since the U.S. Refugee Act of 1980, which was passed, by the way, within the context in part of the first Haitian influxes of that decade. It's a right which is required under international law, international law to which the U.S. is a party and is equally obligated. And so what the U.S. is doing, the U.S. government is violating both U.S. law and international law by insisting on continuing to use Title 42 as a systematic mechanism of exclusion against persons who are entitled to seek asylum under those frameworks. And we do understand when people will say, but the president just it's only been less than two months. And we understand that the current administration have inherited a broken system. We understand that there is a bottleneck at the, at the border that then people are saying, quote, unquote, crisis. No, it has been a crisis that has been bottling up. Now we are seeing the result of four years of complete cruelty under Trump. So now we are looking at what's happening and we say, yes, yes, we understand. But Mr. President, something can be done. We can no longer allow Title 42 to be used as a weapon, to be used as a trap for those most vulnerable of all asylum seekers. 
So the invisible world that we speak of, it is not so invisible for those who are suffering, for those who have been at the border for the past four years. This invisible world that we are speaking about, it is not so invisible for those in search of life. And the amazing unintended consequence of tearing families apart by accepting their children, but not accepting the adults. So we're gonna let them across and their parents we're going to allow to starve and we're gonna allow their hearts to break. As, as many of us stood on the other side of the bridge in Matamoros, the other side from Brownsville and watched parents in paroxysms of grief as they send their children up over the middle of that bridge to the other side. It is a disaster, it is a tragedy, it is immoral, it is horrible. We're not seeing a, a wave of new racism. What we're seeing is racism that we didn't see before. I'm glad we're seeing it now. It's the first step to stopping it. Yeah, Josh, I think I would like to add something positive is the power we as American citizens carry. We voted, and I'm not speaking on behalf of Haitian Bridge Alliance right now. This is Gerling speaking. My voting, my knocking on doors, my making calls was because I believed in the idea, in the hope of saving the soul of America. I believed in the idea of building better for Black migrants, if not building back, because nothing were ever built for Black people in this country, but hoping that together we could build better. As we have the first Black woman vice president. As a Black woman, I cannot tell you how proud I am of being in this United States witnessing this history. When our vice president is a first generation woman of Black ancestry, when we witness having the first Black president who himself, his father, is from Kenya, so I have a way of hope that we, as American citizens, will hold our elected officials accountable. We will pressure President Biden. We will force Vice President uh, Harris. We will hold the feet of Secretary Mayorkas into the fire to make the changes. You could start letting people in, let them go to sponsor families, file their applications for asylum, and consider them and grant them, as far as I'm concerned. I'd like to see the asylum system come back up, but I'd like to see a different view altogether of migration and our responsibilities to allow people to move to places where they can live. Why we think it's better to allow children and not the rest of their families goes against at least what we say about family values in this country. The best people to take care of children and the least expensive way of taking care of children, for that matter, is to allow families to stay together. What can we do now that they're separate? 80 to 90 percent of them we can send right now to their families. Even Biden said most of them have family. He said we should get the family on the phone and then we can ask them the name of their dog to determine that they're really the family. And then we can get the kids there without putting them in CPP facilities, without transferring them to intake convention centers like Dallas and without putting them in ORR facilities like Carrizo Springs and Homestead, which is still in consideration for reopening even after the disaster of its uh, performance the last time 
where children get there inside their moldy walls with their ill-trained staff. Last month, there were 100,000 encounters or apprehensions at the border. Of those, 70,000 were single adults, 10,000 were kids, and 20,000 were families. So the numbers we're talking about are not numbers that are in the millions a month, 20,000 families. Now, it may go up if asylum is open again for families, but the 10,000 kids might be 3,000 unaccompanied minors because there's a good number of them, we believe, would have come with their families. I just want to put in perspective 20,000 families. That doesn't even fill the Dallas Convention Center for a basketball game. On the topic of solutions, I have two concluding thoughts. One, we all need to know more about why the U.S. immigration system doesn't work. The world woke up to the truth in 2018 when Trump and co. made it policy to rip children out of the hands of their anguished parents. But the reality of the horrors immigrants face on the inside of the system predate that at least 40 years. The only upside of Trump's egregious policies was to raise our awareness about just how broken the system is and how successive governments of both political parties have long been committing human rights abuses right here in the so-called land of immigrants and right under our noses. As for my second solution, we must view immigrants as human beings, not statistics, and welcome them with dignity, not cruelty. Migration has been a part of human existence since humans began. I'm an immigrant. We must, we can, embrace immigration as something beneficial for one and all, not a danger or a burden. The crisis at the U.S. southern border isn't about immigration. It lies in the harmful historic myths that hold the American body politic and media hostage to white supremacist ideologies that dominate how we see our world. Like the statues of Confederate generals, they are monuments to structural racism, and they must be torn down. In a recent piece, I named seven myths, the dirty immigrant being one of them, that we must unlearn if we are ever to reclaim our humanity, the very soul of our nation, and build back better with immigration policies aligned with 21st century values and realities. You'll find links to that piece in the show notes as well. But for now, I leave Gerlene and Josh to offer a final word. Uh, so I invite you to please take a look at Title 42, The Invisible Wall, to give you more information. And we, as the United States, these United States of ours, need to welcome people with dignity. So we stand in solidarity with witness at the borders, with all of our partners on the ground in the U.S. to say enough is enough. We want Title 42 to be rescinded right now. Thank you so much. And please stay tuned for their uh, podcast that will be coming. If you're able to support them, please do so. They are doing critical, critical work, making sure that people stay informed, making sure that people are aware, making sure that all of those different pieces come together. Remember to go to Patreon and hear how it starts and contribute and become part of it. An exciting addition to our way of reaching the world. And who knows who we might reach next. So Keep making noise, keep looking, keep witnessing. Thank you. 
Thanks and gratitude to Gerline, Josh, Tom, Camilo, and to you, our listeners, for joining us to unpack the wicked truths lurking behind the invisible wall of Title 42. I'm Sarah Towell, host and director of Witness Radio, where we aim to discuss all the issues plaguing the U.S. immigration system today. This is why we witness. Like our page, Witness at the Border, on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Visit our website and subscribe to our podcast. We'll see you here, there, and everywhere. Witness Radio is produced by Livia Brock.